Hello, hello. Welcome to the Back Porch Podcast. I'm Corey Dempsey. And I'm Andrew Bean. This week we're here with a very special episode, and it's special in the sense that this is the first time we have a listener-generated list that we're going to be doing. Our good friend Zach Howes came to us with this idea to do the top five underappreciated films from the 2000s, and we decided to run with that. And Zach is here to talk about those movies with us. What's going on, Zach? What's up, Back Porch Media? (laughs) I don't know. That that hurt. uh, Yeah. uh, I mean, I appreciate it, but. Good for you. I like the enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm ready to go now. Yeah, and we'll <laughs> we'll talk about after our little intro what underappreciated means. We'll talk about why we chose the 2000s. And to get into that, we are going to be drinking an underappreciated beer. And that beer is Community Beer Works and Gunhill Collaboration Powerful Pills. And we chose this because the Pilsner is the most underrated beer him talk to us about it no i mean i agree so no when it comes to pilsners they're underappreciated and i think it's also evident in terms of like when you go on on untapped you go to a hype brewery that you know they have a pilsner that's dope and all of their other beers are about four stars and higher or four whatever they are and then it gets to the pilsner and somehow it's like a 3.7 or a 3.9 and you're just like well why is that this makes zero sense it's because people don't appreciate pilsners. I mean, that's that's the long and short of it. They they go with their sours and their stouts and their IPAs, and it's just like, well, those, I mean, all those, those things are place. they're good, they're lovely. I love them. So who am I to say? I literally just bought a bunch of all of those. Yeah, they're they're great. It's just like, can we all appreciate pilsners more? Just like we need to appreciate these movies more. So some, let's give some, this some. Nah, well, yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> yeah. enough. <laughs> You haven't heard my list yet. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Okay, so obviously Zach brought this idea to us. I will not have a list in this. This is just going to be between Zach and Corey. I got to watch all of them. And editor's note, I never met Zach until today. So I am now going to be judging him, or I have judged him, (laughs) prejudged him based on just his under, and I do have to qualify it, the underappreciated movies of the 2000s and his list. But I will say... I, I thought it was an interesting concept. So, Zach, explain to us, where did this idea come from? Why did you think this was a good idea to do list of? I mean, I'm sure – I don't remember exactly how it came to me, but I'm sure it started while Corey and I were texting one time about In Bruges, which is – and we'll talk about this, I'm, I know um, – the catalyst for this entire idea. But uh, we were going back and forth, and I started to think about all these movies from the early 2000s that I really liked – that you know very few people did or um it, i just didn't feel like they got the hype that they deserved and i thought it would be a good idea to talk about them because for us we're all in our in our early 30s or mid 30s movies that came out in the 2000s really came out during an influential time in our lives for movies and music and, and everything like that so unfortunately you know, so too, if you think about the way <laughs> these guys behaved in these movies but of course we'll get into that no and that's actually a great point because that's why two of these movies at least are on my list i don't necessarily 
I'm not necessarily going to argue that they're the best movies ever, but they came like one came out when I was 14 and I absolutely loved it. And I, it still cracks me up, even though the, the humor in it is completely juvenile and idiotic. I may, so, uh, may have an idea of which movie you're speaking of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I look forward to getting into that one, but yeah, I mean, Corey, you can elaborate too, but that's, that's kind of how it came to me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we talk a lot about in Bruges, you know, I think, Zach, I showed you that movie back in like 2009 while you were sleeping on my couch in the city. And pretty yeah. much, I think both of us watch it once a year. And we just, you you send me like a screenshot of Colin Farrell saying shit. And I'm like, yes, it's in British time. And usually after you text me that, I'm like, yeah, I should watch that. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't tuned it up in a minute. Um, so, yeah, in Bruges was the kind of catalyst for this conversation. So, is in Bruges underappreciated? You know, I think. It, it kind uh, of is. I, I appreciate it a lot. I appreciate it I a lot it. too. You know, I think I think where this idea of underappreciated comes from is, you know, a movie like In Bruges, I think should have gotten a lot of awards considerations. I think it should have been, you know, pretty much loved by critics all over. I think everyone should have seen it. And I think a lot of people have... Everyone must see this movie. They, they should. I, it's fucking awesome. I mean, it's got <laughs> comedy. It's got action. It's got this existential crisis at the center of it. Like, it has so much going on. And it's just such a brilliant movie. And Colin Farrell does you, a great job in it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone does a great job. I mean, Ray Fiennes is batting a thousand. Like, yeah. he is yeah. throwing heat the entire movie. And, you know, I, I think that when you look at it and then you look at like the Metacritic score, they didn't love it all that much. It's got like a 67. What did, what did Rotten Tomatoes do? I, I don't know. I didn't look at Rotten Tomatoes. I kept it on Metacritic. I, d- I don't know why. I just like Metacritic better. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, yeah. I, the problem with Rotten Tomatoes is you can be, you can get, uh, can't you get positive if it's like 50% or better and the person could be saying, I don't really like it, but it's, you know, get the, it still gets a fresh tomato or whatever. Yeah. And I don't know, I just, I just kind of like Metacritic, but you know, when you look at that score, it's, it's not like universally loved by critics. When you look at the box office, it's not like everyone has seen it. And, you know, I, I go on my little film nerd thing, letterboxd. And like, when I go on there, you know, not everyone loves it that much. And I'm just like, why this is an incredible, incredible movie. I mean, all you need, all you need to tell someone who's never seen it is that there's a scene with Ray Fiennes or finds where his wife says it's an, it's an inanimate fucking object. And he responds to her. You're an inanimate fucking object. <laughs> That's all you need to know. It's one of the best lines in cinematic history. It's incredible. And there's it's like, so it's many. like profoundly childish in several moments, but it's also just so wonderfully written and well executed. It is. It, it's, that's the reason it didn't appear on either of our lists because in the end, the writing was appreciated. It was nominated for an Academy Award for original screenplay. Uh, Martin McDonough was recognized for that. So, like, if you're winning an award, how underappreciated are you really? But still well, nominated, nominated, right? If you're nominated for like the biggest award in movies, like it can't be really underappreciated. But at the same time, like I think it should have been nominated for Best Picture. If you look at 2008, there were a couple that it could have knocked out if it had qualified. Where yeah, would it be on either? I, where would it be on either of you guys' list? Oh, the top. Yeah, number one, it's, and that's part of the reason why we didn't want to include it either because Corey and I would have gotten agree. over who got to do it. So yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I guess your, your podcast 
you would have won, but still. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't want to have to fight that out with you. And so we just decided we'll talk about it a little bit at the top. And, you know, Zach, are there any specific things that apart from Ray finds great line about being an inanimate object, are there any other things that you want to talk about with this movie? I think that's one of the, uh, it's hard to remember because it was a while ago, but I think that movie is possibly the first time I ever realized what a good actor Colin Farrell is. It made me appreciate him more than ever. Yeah. Cause prior to that, I really only thought of him as like, you know, the guy in that shitty daredevil movie and a couple, you know, he was, a uh, Oh, he was in SWAT, which actually I love, but phone booth. Admit is not a very good movie. Phone booth was kind of, uh, you're right that he was just kind of floating around in this crappy blockbuster world where he was doing phone booth and he did the recruit, I yeah. think, and SWAT and Miami Vice, that really misbegotten movie mm-hmm. with Jamie Foxx and Colin Farrell. Like, and I feel like since in Bruges, he's been recognized more for actually his like acting chops. And he really is a phenomenal actor in this movie. You know, he gets the humor and his like dry Irish wit comes through all the time. But then when you get this, you know, he, he's facing an existential crisis in this movie. And when he has to play that up, he's doing a really great job of, of doing that as well. He captures the emotional weight of everything that he's dealing with. In the yeah, moment. absolutely. And he, he does it really well. So, you know, Zach, I think you're absolutely right that this this is Colin Farrell's best and probably most important movie for him in his career in terms of like being recognized as like a really good quality actor. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, everybody is phenomenal in it. And I, I, as you guys were talking, I was just looking up some more of the quotes. It's incredible how many funny scenes there are in that movie. Like the, the scene with the Americans where he's telling them they're too fat to go up the stairs. Dude. And then, uh, yeah, just not even trying to be polite about it whatsoever. He's a bunch of and fucking elephants. <laughs> yeah. And what's um what's uh his partner's name? The actor? Brendan Gleason. Yeah, and then Brendan Gleason comes in at the end of the scene and is trying to be nice and says, No, you all shouldn't go up there. Yeah. And she just fuck yourself. <laughs> and it just cuts to Colin Farrell. He's like, Americans in it. And I just love yeah. I love the American shade that they throw in this movie because there's also the scene with the guy in the restaurant, mm-hmm. but it turns out he's Canadian and he's like, well, they didn't kill John Lennon. So like just these little things in the movie, it's just all so brilliant and so well written and so well delivered by all the characters. It's just, I, I think it's, well, it's not perfect because there are some things that have not aged well, but I, I, was, I was just saying, Beam, uh, here's something you'll learn, uh, and this is very un-PC from, Corey, from your partner in podcasting. Okay. Corey, when I lived with would get me a beer and get himself a beer and would say, one gay beer for my gay friend. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound right, Corey. I mean, yeah. listen, this was this was college-aged me. I mean, I... No, we were, I did a ton of regrettable things. That was that was a hilarious line then. Yes, yeah, and that would be the one that doesn't age, that ages poorly. It's very it's very poor form now. Like, you can't say stuff like that, and I would not say that, but, like, it's really funny. <laughs> and one normal thing for me, because I am normal. <laughs> I actually have that for each of my movies, except, uh, well, except for the two of the more serious ones, but... I picked out moments that would not fly in 2021 from most of my movies because there are many of them. Well, so that brings up a good point then. Obviously, we just went, we gushed about a movie that could have been, that we believe is 
uh, underappreciated would have made the list had it not have been disqualified. So clearly you guys have a set of criteria. What is that set of criteria for you, for these movies that you guys picked? What, what do they, what qualifications do they have to meet in order to, to have been on this list? So in order to be underappreciated, we basically were looking at two things. Do audiences love this movie? And the the kind of barometer or metric we looked at to judge that was the box office. <clears throat> and so basically, did this movie gross $50 million? Did it make $50 million compared to its budget? Or was it less than that? Kind of signaling that not many people or not as many people saw it as kind of was intended given the budget of the film. And then the second was, do critics love this movie? Because obviously, you know, you can have audiences who don't necessarily see a movie, but critics love it. And I wouldn't say that's underappreciated because critics love it. But in this case, we also looked at the Metacritic score. And if it was below a 70, we said that it counted as being underappreciated which may be a little bit high but you know there were some movies that i really wanted to talk about that i just kind of needed to find a number that would allow me to oh this sounds like you just making whatever rules you want and just going with it uh not yeah. that we've seen that before <laughs> i mean i don't know what you want from me this is our podcast i'll make whatever fuck rules i want no 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 i know i just like to point it out <laughs> if i want to massage the rules like who's gonna stop me you <laughs> no exactly i'm just i'm just i'm just pointing them out don't yeah. don't mind me no you're absolutely right and so basically i just found a number that would allow me to talk about the movies i wanted to talk about and then put it on there but i think 70s fair i mean i don't know no, it definitely is i mean I, we didn't want to talk about actual like well you guys will disagree with me on some of these but i didn't want to talk about absolute trash movies so <laughs> well, i don't know why you would say that zach and yet a couple <laughs> Are just wow, we're gonna well, talk yeah, about I, it. I can't wait I to talk about so, it. So let's I'm so goddamn excited to get started on my list. All right, hold on. Do you want do we want to just go then? Let's just start with it. Zach, what is the first movie that you want to talk about for this list you created here? All right, well, because we built it up so much, uh, number one will be Johnny English. That's right, Johnny English from two thousand three. I find I saw this movie right when it came out. I don't know why either. Did you see what's it? that? Did you see it in theaters? I didn't see it in theaters. In no. fact, actually, I think my parents had really early Netflix, so I think I got it on Netflix, like mailed to my house. Was it ever in um, theaters? Yes, yes, yes. It was. It had to have been. It, yeah, they've made sequels. It had to have been. Well, that's the thing. So, real quick, Zach, before you get into it, we we both kind of cheated with one of our picks and. This was our cheat because, or this is Zach's cheat because Johnny English, like Beam said, has two sequels. And in order to get sequels made, you have to have made a shit ton of money. And strangely enough, you know, Johnny English made like upwards of a hundred million dollars. It's, it's, <laughs> it's absurd to me. I don't, un I don't understand. <laughs> what? It shows, it shows that I'm a, I am a person who represents the masses. All right. We, it's not we always a good thing. Do you remember 2016? So, all right. Please explain. So, it I, I guess I guess it is the cheat. It didn't it didn't match the the budget that we have set here, correct? Or or the gross. Yeah. And that that we said here. That was I didn't mean to cheat on this. I I don't know what the hell I was reading. I honestly thought this had less than 50 million, which would have made sense. But no, I'm looking at it right now. Are you just discovering it's it right now? Yeah, yeah. It looks like it's it was 160 million. 
That's so much money. I, I, it's crazy. So what do you love about this? So I, I find the British, to me, this is British Austin Powers, which is hysterical because Austin Powers, Austin Powers whole point of existing is to spoof uh, James Bond movies, which is in of itself British. So it's almost like a British spoof of an American spoof of 007. But the way I think of this movie is it's a cross between Get Smart and Austin Powers. And I find it to be less cartoonish and like less smack you over the head with um, slapstick humor than Austin Powers is. So, I, I mean, everything in this movie that Rowan Atkinson does, I find hysterical. And I think actually he fits perfectly in this conversation because he is a very underrated comedian from the 2000s as well. Corey, I see you grinning. No, I, I actually completely agree with this point. I think Rowan Atkinson is a gem. I I don't know why, but I love the Mr. Bean character. His appearance in Love Actually is the best part about that movie, like when he shows up yeah. as the gift wrapper. And I, I, I have I, that down. Yeah, I completely agree with you that Rowan Atkinson is completely underappreciated. I don't necessarily agree with you that this movie is great, but I, keep keep going. I, I totally agree with you on the Ro- Rowan Atkinson point. So the reason why I think now, granted, again, I was working with the belief that this only made 50 ish million, but. I feel like part of the reason why this didn't do as well as in my mind it should have and why people don't like it as much is because at at that point in time, 2003, people had Austin Powers fatigue too. They were kind of sick of the goofy spoof of spy movies. So this came in at the end and didn't get the love and attention it deserved. But I don't know. I don't know how to, I, I don't know how to convince you uh, properly how funny it is when Rowan Atkinson does all of these these things in the movie with such a false sense of confidence, even though he's so incompetent, and immediately it blows up in his face, like moments afterwards. Like, so, Corey, you watched it, right? The the first scene or one of the opening scenes when he's leaning over the car to talk to his equivalent of M from James Bond, and he says, "You are now in the safest area in the whole of Britain," and then immediately afterwards, a car blows up behind him, and you see his his deadpan face it's it cracks me up every goddamn time no and this the scene before that where he you know is talking to the agent one and he's like you know i i got the submarine hatch and then the the text comes up that the submarine hatch didn't open and i i I agree with you like the setup should work because this idea (laughs) (laughs) this idea of this completely overconfident guy like that is hysterical but at the same time i just got exhausted with it like halfway through and i was like can we get to the part where he realizes and like natalie and brulia's character gets some get some shine here i i i just got a little bit exhausted like around okay, 30 I will, minutes in. i will i will admit that the first half of the movie in my mind is an a plus starts off on fire but it does drag and like it's it's definitely not nearly as funny at the end of the movie I'm glad you brought up Natalie Imbruglia because she is in her prime in that movie, an absolute smoke show. I don't really know what happened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, power rank her career achievements. Torn, then Johnny English. Exactly. Yes. She's just, 
I, I don't know um, what else is there to like compare to, but yes, those are definitely. The I don't top know what two. else she's done. I, I actually have, number, I number just watched this movie just thinking, what is she up to? Number three is just being from Australia in general. So as I go through, as I look at my notes and all the things that I love, I'll just I'll rattle rattle them off quickly. So Rowan Atkinson, right? Underrated comedian, Love Actually is hysterical. Another underappreciated movie from the 2000s. He plays Zazu in The Lion King and is incredible in it. And just just in general, he's such a weird looking dude. He's very memorable. John Malkovich is Pascal Sauvage with the worst French accent I think I've ever heard for a movie. But that's kind of John Malkovich's thing is to make incredible characters with dog shit accents and still be awesome in it. Yeah. Can we talk about uh, Teddy KGB and Rounders? Like... <laughs> His accent work and his terrible wig in this movie. Oh god! That oh my wig. goodness! That wig is hilarious. <laughs> I still—he's kind of like another one, Corey, who we talked about in a, another upcoming movie of mine, where he has a character I just I love in everything he's in, and if he's in a movie, I'm going to watch it, even if it's terrible. French jokes. This was another note. French jokes always play. Always funny. <laughs> French. I do. I do agree with you. The the French joke. The only thing the French are fit to host is an invasion. That was a pretty good line. That is. That is actually very well written. <laughs> uh, and right before that, when he says something, it's something something like a jumped up Frenchman. I don't know why, but calling someone a jumped up Frenchman cracks me up too. <laughs> Oh, oh, actually, the greatest scene in the whole movie. It it slays me every time. I'm not kidding. I like I still tear up and I've seen it 20 times is the, the entire muscle relaxant sequence where he accidentally pricks his own finger with instead of a truth, truth, chair of a muscle relaxant. I, I don't know why, but when he walks in and the first champagne glass, he walks into the room and the first champagne glass is handed. It goes right through his hands and hits the floor. And then he grabs the second one and snaps the stem of it because he still has no control over his hands. Oh my god! I I don't know how that's a, a plus comedy. I I don't know if this is more of an indictment of the movie or it's more celebrating you, but I think it's funnier when you're describing I it than was, it was in the actual I was movie. literally just going to say that. I was Zach, man. I know you love this movie, and I know you guys love Rowan Atkinson. I I don't like either. <laughs> And that and that's kind of the well, that's the problem for me. That's more of a personal issue. And here's the other thing. Corey likes to say this, always bringing my baggage. Do you know how many times people have mistaken my last name for Bean? Mr. Bean instead of Bean? It's been fucking my entire life. Dude, my mother does it all the time. All the time. It's it's infuriating. I'm like, this is one of my best friends. Could you please get his name right? You catered his wedding. Fucking sorted out, mom. Um, Beam, I can actually relate to you uh, because, and this isn't—I don't know why. Give me—I don't know why I can't think of his name. But basically, the actor who plays Doogie Howser—he's very obviously very famous. Neil oh Patrick yeah, Neil Patrick Harris. Harris. Neil Patrick Harris. I couldn't stand him for the longest time because of Doogie Howser. My last name is Howe. Yeah, I feel. I like know it. how you feel, man. It, when people mess with your last name. So you're saying. You were able to get past it, and you now appreciate Neil Patrick Harris. What you're telling me is that there's still hope for me yeah, and Rowan Atkinson. I, yeah, I think that – I mean, look, I we're talking about underappreciated movies here, not, not A-plus, the best of the 2000s for certain. I can understand 
people not or you guys not liking this necessarily. I think I'm just, I just think it's I'm representing. I'm playing up the part of the underappreciated. I am here. I'm here to represent the underappreciate the people that are underappreciating things. That is that was my I, role, I guess in this. I also and this is something that maybe I should have said at the outset, but Corey and I. Corey has influenced a lot of movies that I like. That that is something I do. I did want to make sure I said. But Corey and I also have very different tastes, and I think sometimes mine are more mainstream. I, I mean, I'm not going to insult myself and say dumber, but are you yeah, trying to say that? Way, Corey, yes. Are you trying to say that Corey is a snob? You can say it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we called Corey a hipster snob uh, from 2008 <laughs> forward. So I think it was before that. but but my point is with my list i definitely tried to pick movies that were uh a little bit low lower brow movies than what i anticipated Corey picking no and i i appreciate that and i I, you know when i look at johnny english i i wanted to like this movie so fucking bad because i love rowan atkinson and i've stated that before i love spoofy spy movies like the naked gun series is with leslie nielsen from like the late 80s early 90s one of my favorite things in the world i think it's absolutely hysterical and same with austin powers i love the first austin powers i don't care for the second two but that's neither here nor there so when i was like tuning this up and i i had watched it before but i hadn't watched it in a very long time i was like oh i i feel like i'm gonna love this movie and then I just watched it and I only laughed once and I was like, man, I, I tried. I really, I really tried. <laughs> I don't know how you don't appreciate the opening sequence over the credits where he walks into a building where he's supposed to work every day and gets completely lost. And for like two minutes or three minutes of, oh my God, I forget the British singer, whatever his song is. Robbie for Williams. three minutes. Yeah. Yeah. He's wandering around this building trying to figure out where the fuck he's supposed to go uh, again when you describe it it's, it's really it's funny. a lot funnier when you describe it <laughs> it's just the it's one of those things where i feel like if i read the script i would have thought it was hilarious or thought it was going to be hilarious yeah I, I feel like it's just the execution in the movie where i'm like well that kind of fell flat like when uh, you know there's this one thing that sticks out to me when like he comes into the office and he just throws his coat out the window <laughs> And I'm just like, I, I know that was supposed to make me laugh, but I'm just like, uh, okay, <laughs> I get it. He's dumb. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, don't I, know. I, won't, I won't tell you then how much that makes me laugh when I see it. <laughs> Again, either of you guys just describing it really, really funny. When I watched it, I was like, oh, it's going to go out the window. There it goes. <laughs> well, were you not paying attention to how beautifully it was set up when in the beginning, the expert spy does it? And does it perfectly. Then two minutes later, Johnny English tries it and screws it up royally. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. It uh, still didn't Again, work on me. <laughs> Zach, I really appreciate that, that the way is, I appreciate the way you describe it more than than that how is I saw cinematic, it. Cinematic class, right there. Sure. Okay. Last thing. I, so I won't. I won't make you guys st- uh, stay on a movie that you didn't love. But last. Oh, oh. Last thing I'll say about it is. I found it really interesting on this watch. I didn't really, I never really thought about it until I watched it again this time. How much the most recent Get Smart with Steve Carell um, mimics or steals on this movie. Like a, a mm. huge chunk of the overall plot is Get Smart, which came out in what, 2012 or whatever it was. So uh, I think we owe that cinematic masterpiece to Johnny English's existence. 
So I actually haven't seen Get Smart. But here's the thing. I also really could buy into the idea that Steve Carell is the Americanized version of Rowan Atkinson, much as he is the Americanized version of Ricky Gervais from The Office. He's just taking British shit and like turning it into an Americanized version of. He does it really well. Yeah. So yeah, that all right, that's all I got for you then. Um on well on that one. I'm 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 sorry. You wait. We gotta set up we should set up a poll after this. All the listeners can tell us whether they loved it or not. I bet I win. No, well there's a chance. We'll we'll definitely set up a poll and it'll be your list compared to my list. Who wins? And (laughs) honestly, I think you're probably gonna win just because (laughs) there's a movie on yours disqualify the rest of your goddamn list <laughs> and i'm still like i'm still getting sick to my stomach thinking about it yeah should we should we just fair. go to it no no i gotta do my cheat pick first oh i so thought we, that was the cheat pick never no, mind that's not the cheat pick oh boy all right so my cheat pick and it is a cheat because again it made too much money but it didn't make enough money to make it so that it is properly appreciated and that movie is the strangers the Strangers is a 2008 movie directed by Brian Bertino featuring Liv Tyler and Scott Speedman. They are a couple who goes to a cabin in the woods and then they are terrorized by three masked figures. And the reason I say that it's underappreciated because it made like 90 million. But when you look at horror movies, if you think about like The Conjuring, if you think about like Paranormal Activity, Blair Witch Project, these movies are all in the hundreds of... 150,000 like these are the Johnny Englishes of the world. Yeah. And personally, I think the strangers belongs in the conversation with the conjuring with Blair Witch Project with paranormal activity as one of the most terrifying horror movies I've ever seen. I think the strangers is just an incredible achievement as horror filmmaking goes. It's not a perfect film. You know, it doesn't transcend the genre. It's very bound by the horror genre. But in terms of the horror genre, it is like as close to perfect as you can get. For me, part of the horror was you just proposed to a woman who just kind of gave you, "Ah, I don't know. So like, and you're just kind of trapped in that place with her for that for that amount of time. Until then, of course, like the more uh, outside threat of these random people who were like, and the other thing that I thought about that in terms of a horror film, what made this so scary, just the thought of it, is the concept of there was no reason as to why they were there to do this. It's just because they were there. No, and I, I completely agree with you. No. And that's two of the things that I love about this movie. The first is, you know, Beam, you mentioned how you understand that this the, the, this couple is going through a difficult time in their relationship. Which I think it's a very interesting it is. It's, it's an interesting setup. And it's one of the things that I love is that they actually spent time with the characters to establish them. Not too much, because then you bog down the movie in details that you don't really need. But it actually took 15 minutes to 20 minutes of the movie's runtime to actually establish who these characters are. And that is something that doesn't often happen in horror movies. And I actually appreciated that. The second thing that you mentioned is this is one of the darkest, most depraved movies, horror movies I've ever seen. And it's because of that idea that there is absolutely no reason, no motivation to it. It's just and the the masked killer says it. It's just because you were home. Mm -hmm. That's it. And like that idea, the depravity in that is just something that really is terrifying. And then 
you know, the, the third thing that I think makes it so brilliant is the director, Brian Bertino, he just does an absolutely outstanding job of establishing mood and vibe in the movie. And it is a mood and vibe that is just completely unsettling throughout. You feel your skin crawling, even at the little things, so that when the little noises happen, you actually jump a little bit because he's established an atmosphere around this thing that is just naturally unsettling. So when things happen, you're actually scared. He so, built up the tension very well. Exactly. And so I, th- I think that's just a masterful job on his part. Uh, Zach, what are your thoughts? I have an interesting or a point to make because I think there's an interesting conversation that uh, you can always have when it comes specifically to horror movies. I like, but do not love this, this particular movie. I think, I think it's totally fine. I don't, I don't think it's bad for anything, but it doesn't really scare me that much, which is weird because I also agree with everything you said about the, um, the, the mood being set by the soundtrack accompany, accompanying the movie, the sense of the sense of dread that you get, and also just the I don't know what the what right word just the idea that it's senseless and there is no point behind it. Yes, I thematically I get is a very terrifying idea. But what I would what I wanted to talk about when I watched this movie is how people get scared because I personally don't get that scared by movies where there's a serial killer or just a human a human person committing these horrible things because I, I think and I don't know for certain but like I think in my mind it's because I always think oh well I could fight back or I could just get in a car and drive away or just leave so for me personally the movies that scare the shit out of me are the paranormal ones where you couldn't in no way ever fight back paranormal actually paranormal activity scariest movie I've ever seen this one I understand why it should be scary but for some reason, it just doesn't do it for me the same way. So, so yeah, I, I like it, but I didn't like uh, it. Didn't terrify me the way it sounds like it. It messes with you. Well, I think for me, the reason why I kind of feel that way is because you know, with what you're referring to, the not being able to fight back. We're also talking about something that is not as likely to happen. Also, what, wasn't this based off of a real story? I thought I remembered that it was. It was. That that thing gets attached to all horror movies. Yeah. <laughs> and this, is, yeah. this is also a pretty funny point. So, you know, that, that based on a truth story thing just gets attached to all horror movies to make you feel like it's a realistic thing. But, like, at the end of the day, I, I just don't believe the based on a true story thing. And I just watch the movie for, like, the movie's sake. And, Zach, your point is interesting that Paranormal Activity, The Conjuring, two of my favorite horror movies, I, I absolutely adore them. And they do scare the shit out of me. But I don't believe in demons. I don't believe in ghosts. Like none of this shit is actually real to me. So when I watch these movies, I'm just watching it for like the horror make horror filmmaking craft. What is he doing with the camera? What are they doing with the sounds? And how is that impacting me? And so when I think about the strangers, I always come back to this one scene where the first jump scare happens and the intruder is at the glass door at the back of the house. And then a whole bunch of shit goes down. And then the record player just keeps skipping Mm -hmm. on Quicksilver Girl. And Mm -hmm. the voice on the record is absolutely terrifying. And just they're banging on the house all around and it just keeps going and going and going. And it's just the most unsettling scene like 
I was crawling out of my skin when I first saw that movie <laughs> in the theater. Yeah, there, right there, you bring up another awesome horror trope that works every single time it's used, where you pick either an old-timey song or just random lyrics and play it in some perverse skipping fashion or high-pitched sound. You just you mess with the music ever so slightly and play it over and over again, and it becomes so creepy. It makes me think of uh, Jeepers Creepers all the time. That song, inherently, it's a silly, like, what, 1940s, 50s song, whatever it is. But in the movie Jeepers Creepers, scares the ever-loving shit out of me. Hmm. And, and, and you're right. In, in Strangers, that does, it does make it very creepy, too. So I think, I, I personally, I don't like horror movies that much to begin with, because I don't like spending 90 minutes to two hours just being scared or unsettled. But... I do, I do find the artistic value of them fascinating because it really digs into what fear is and how people experience fear differently. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And I, I like horror movies for two reasons. And the one is the thing that you identified, that the craft, the filmmaking craft involved in these movies is just so often perfect. And the way that they move the camera and the sounds that they're using, all of those things are all with a purpose and when they work it's just so exhilarating that like i know exactly what you're doing but it's still fucking terrifying me i know that you're going to that hallway and i know that there's nothing going to be there but i know later something's going to be there and then even when it does it it just gets me every single time the other thing is i'm dead inside i Um, i understand this i i just don't feel that often so (laughs) i just like to turn on a horror movie for two hours because it does get me and makes me feel things and i just need that occasionally well we'll get to that later on this list as well so i mean there's two yeah, things so oh i was just gonna say that's why i love rom-coms because uh, i'm dead and they make you they make you feel like things aren't so bad i love rom-coms too for that exact reason <laughs> I apparently feel way too much, um, which is then I have to like watch both of these things. And then I'm just like going, I'm going through a lot. I went through a lot through these movies. <laughs> Two things that I actually have for this movie, and they're actually kind of knocks on it. And they're more just because I thought, I really thought this was such a, a very good movie. But then there was this one scene that I thought could have been like the scariest part of the movie. And it's when she's like hiding in the closet or the cupboard, I think of what it was. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh man. They're going to find her and she's going to be so fucked. But no, they get to the cupboard and it just seems like the person that gets there just starts kind of going like dead hands on it and just starts flapping on the thing for a little while. Like it just was such a bizarre scene that that's how what it led up to. It just it felt like it fell so flat and just it looked like she was just like, oh, look, I'm scaring you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I agree. That part was so weird. I agree, but it's all part of the game because that's the thing. And you, you mentioned this before that it's just for sport. So like right. no, I, all they're doing is fucking messing and torturing these people. And at the same time, the director is torturing you, like making it tortured you tortured me. And then it made me laugh. Like he, she should have just started tickling her, but no. And then the last though, the jump scare ending, I was like, okay, we didn't need that. I you you could have just ended it on its own there. I've, I've let fu- her let her eyes just open. I fucking hate the ending of this movie. I think it, and, and it's two reasons. One, it's such a cheap attempt at a jump scare to end the movie. Like, and the second thing is it undercuts the rest of the movie because it's supposed to be this hugely dark, depraved thing where everyone fucking dies. 
And yet you're leaving us with this glimmer of hope that like Liv Tyler might be alive still. And it's just cheap. It undercuts the movie. I really dislike the ending. It's something that I hate about most horror movies is that they never, not never, they very rarely stick the landing and it doesn't, it doesn't mitigate or it doesn't, you know, change what I felt for the hour and 20 minutes leading up to that. But it does still leave me with like a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth where it's like, Ugh, you fucking, you, you copped out. On I, the I think it's more where like the, uh, some of the violence in the movie, a lot of it I felt like was implied where it's like, you're not really seeing it. So what I'm saying more about the movie is that it doesn't hit you over the head with everything. Whereas that scene kind of does. Yeah. And like, she could just opened her eyes. I thought that would have been a better, better ending. It would have scared the shit out of the kid. And you also would be like, well, she's not talking like her getting up and going, ah, like, yeah, maybe there's a chance for you. But if you just open your eyes, it's like, cool. That's about all she can do forever. All right, Zach, what's the next movie you want to talk about? Right. Let's talk about Green Street because Corey and I, uh, this is another one uh, similar in vein, in style or vein to In Bruges in that Corey, I feel like Corey and I can relate a lot over it because I, I'm pretty sure, Corey, you introduced me to it. If not, I mean, it was a very important movie amongst all of our soccer friends. So that is, that's why it's on this list for me. Um, so Green Street Hooligans is the movie. And let me pull up what year it came out, uh, just so that we... Uh, 2005. So I think a lot of our friends know Green Street Hooligans. Like it, our crew of soccer guys. I mean, if, you play, if you're an American who played soccer, you probably know it. I, a big reason why it's on my list is because it was the first time I ever watched a movie about a mainstream movie about soccer, which didn't totally fuck up the soccer part of it. And also didn't make soccer players look like pussies. So I, so I absolutely loved it immediately off the bat for that. And the funny thing is it actually isn't really about soccer players, but in my mind, when I first saw it as a 19 or 20 year old, that was something that stuck with me. I'm like, oh, awesome. This is a, a movie about soccer that doesn't make us look like a bunch of suburban moms with three kids who, you know, wear shin guards with the ankle braces on it. I feel like you just described what we were. <laughs> <laughs> look, man, I never wore the ankle protectors because I was cool. This movie's incredible. The things that I love about this movie are, aside from what I just mentioned, Charlie Hunnam is incredible. Oh, he's great in it. Um, and he's another one, uh, completely different style than Rowan At Atkinson, but I think he's another underrated actor. I really do think he's a very good actor, and I'm surprised. I, Corey, I texted you about this. I'm almost surprised that he's not in a Marvel movie at this point, because I think he should be that level of, of star or have that level of stardom, especially after... Um, Sons yeah, his, but, um, yeah, Sons of Anarchy. He's incredible in that as Jack. But I just it surprises me that he's not a bigger star because I think he's incredible in this movie. I think he's a great actor. Yeah, I, I just think he should he should have more. Oh, he's he's definitely a highlight in this movie. Like he's he's phenomenal in it. But what it brought to mind was he kind of is a similar character as it was that he was in that as in Jacks in uh, in in Sons of Anarchy. I mean, he's. He's a he's basically just a gang leader again. I feel like what it comes yeah. down to is he's really good as a gang leader. And to your point, <laughs> he's really good as the gang leader with a heart of gold. Like he's the gang leader he, with he, a heart actually, of gold. Yeah, 
he's fundamentally a bad person in both, in Sons of Anarchy and in Green Street Hooligans. He's a bad person. But Correct. you're rooting for him the entire time, and it speaks to his performance because he's great he, with, you can tell. No, I was just going oh, no, to say he's great with kids in Green Street <laughs> Hooligans. I feel like he's doing a great job yeah, with those kids. Yeah, he's phenomenal with kids. You should see him with Elijah Wood, that little child. Oh. <laughs> I, Elijah Wood, I'll talk about when I talk about things that I actually hate about this movie, we can talk about Elijah. But, um, wow. Because actually, this is a movie that made me appreciate Elijah Wood more. Oh, he's terrible in this. Dude. Oh, he's so, he's so right. soft. All right, let's just go into it now. No, then. no, I think he now. just is soft. And tries really hard to play hard in this movie, like, and it's and it's adorable. It's adorable. He, he's smoking cigarettes. He's throwing hands. You're right. In fairness to Frodo, it's probably not his fault. There's there's just no way on God's green earth I'm ever going to believe that five foot five Elijah Wood is all all of a sudden this tough guy who's beating the shit out of like 40 year old British men who've been fighting since they were 12 years old. Yeah. seems very unlikely. I, that's one of the things I actually wrote down. I was like, he went from a know nothing to smoking cigarettes and throwing hands. Well, very quickly the within days, fast. within days. Well, so uh, I'll, let me come back to that. Cause I do love this movie and let me, let me first establish why I love the movie, but, and then we can come oh, back. Oh, I'm to sorry. I do too. I just thought it was really funny to talk about Elijah Wood. The actor who plays Bob, and actually it's funny, back to back, my first two, mo- first two movies, the sidekick's name is Bob or Bobber. I did notice Classic. that. But the actor who plays him, and I think he was a producer on the movie too, he has a phenomenal performance as this, I, I guess, as this best friend who doesn't agree with, obviously, bringing in the outsider and is doing his best to cope with it, but ultimately can't. and stuff the entire situation because he can't get past his own insecurities. No, I thought he did a great job. The problem, though, I had with that whole arc of the character was like we're attaching it to well, it's not hooliganism, it's firms, which is a whole other <laughs> level, right? Eh, it's, it's really the same, but yes. Right. They Well, they try and play it off as like there's divisions. Right. It just felt funny because the backdrop of what... like. I get it because it was trying to create this emotional tie-in, but it also just seems so silly because what we're talking about is fucking soccer fans. Well, but what and you I, have to understand is that right. that's that's reality in England. Like that is the level of fandom, and that's that's what this movie is really about. Is like yeah, this obsessive fanaticism that comes along with you know liking sports to this degree. And the significant impacts that it can have on your personal life when, when you do that, and I, which of course the end of the movie really drives home. It's like, what the fuck are we doing? This yeah, for? it really hammers you over the head with it. Um, and, and Beam, I'm glad you brought that up because I actually have a very specific thought about firms, um, in and how they're portrayed in this movie, and just actually firms in general in real life. Right. Um, I think is a bit above my IQ level, but I want to bring it up anyway. Really quickly, I'll run through the, the rest of the things I loved. Uh, the wardrobe in it is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. The, like they nail it. Um, they, I, I spent, I've spent a decent amount of time abroad in my life, and I can confirm that's precisely what like kind of dirt bag Europeans look like, and I love it uh, with the tracksuits and everything else. The tracksuit jacket um, is fucking perfect. To be fair, though, everyone's yeah. wearing tracksuits now. Everyone. <laughs> that's true. 
I wrote down that I really appreciated, and this goes back to my whole my whole idea that this movie made it less embarrassing to be a soccer player in America. This movie came came out, and while we were in college at the same time, FIFA all of a sudden became a cool video game to play. Right. So I, in my mind, tie these two things together because it they almost represent like the American acceptance of the sport of soccer where it wasn't just for a bunch of, you know, short little unathletic white kids anymore. It was a cool thing to play. So that's something I appreciate about it. I also think it's hysterical that so many Americans became West Ham fans because of this movie. And I know British people absolutely detest that that happened. But I think that's uh, hilarious. So West Ham Ham participated in it too. West Ham was part mm-hmm. of this. <laughs> They're I partially think, responsible. That, uh, a real game that they filmed, right? Yeah, it is. And when you look, you can see like Premier League players from that era are in that game, which is it, it's cool. I like it. Yeah. So uh, two things. One, if we do have any British listeners, I'll tell you right now, I will never refer to a game as a match and their cleats, not boots. You can suck it. Oh, wow. But, Shots but second of fired. all, Dude, I always all, say um, boots. I always say pitch. I always say match. I say I, I just I've just adopted all of the English things. No, you're trying to, you're trying to adopt everything that's other than American. Yeah, I fucking hate America. <laughs> that's that's right. well established. Wow, shots fired on the podcast. Um, nah, nah, it's well, been a running theme. <laughs> then I'll tell you, my next movie is Rocky Four. <laughs> So those are, those are all the things that I love. Now I wanted I want to touch back on the firm's idea because uh, while I was watching this, I had a thought, and this is this kind of ties into like how how we view things differently in 2021. I find it I think there's an in, an interesting discussion to be had about this movie and how it represents firms as that firms are this honorable thing that you're a part of, even though yes, what you're doing is illegal. You're getting into street fights. Um, it, it's still honorable, and it's about doing things that you know protect your friends, support your family, whatever it is, so on and so forth. Charlie Hunnam actually specifically compares firms to gang American gangs in this movie, and and paints American gangs in, in a negative light. And he's like, he essentially says, "We're not fucking American. We're not the fucking Crips and Bloods. We don't we don't do this and that. Uh, we're be- he implies that we're better than they are." I find that interesting because at the end of the day, no, you're not. You're still doing illegal shit. And I also find something, a fascinating thing about that to be, you actually are comparing like white gangs versus black gangs. So you can make the claim that why are you, or you can make, you can ask the question, why are we idolizing or romanticizing these white gangs and villainizing black gangs when my thought is they should all be villainized because they're all criminals. I think when you think about it, like gangs like the Crips and Bloods are a product of circumstance. Mm -hmm. Whereas that's also true. The context in which they originated. Yeah. And then a thing like a firm, like you're forming a gang around a soccer team. Yeah. And you have the money to go buy tickets to these games that are very expensive. So like it's, (laughs) I don't identify with these firms at all. I think, I think they're ridiculous. And I, I don't know if they're necessarily romanticizing it. I do act. They definitely do represent that like 
Elijah Wood has gained something from that experience, which I think is problematic. But like at the same time, when I look at them, I think they're so foolish because they're not even soccer fans. They don't care about the soccer. They don't ever talk about the soccer. They are there. I mean, they do. They talk about scores. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> like Bob is more concerned about riling up the other fans than like actually watching the game. Like you're not a, you're not a fan. I, I don't want to turn this into a discussion about you know the differences in class and, and race and everything. That, that's for a completely different time. But I just found it interesting. I thought that was something that the movie touches on and could be explored even further. Let's get to the things I hate because oh. I love this movie. But as with most movies that anybody loves, you can nitpick the shit out of them. Uh, Elijah Wood, we already talked about. He's five foot five. No fucking way is he beating up anybody. I could fight him right now and beat him up. Some of the writing. Also five foot five. (laughs) I'm five foot four. Thank you. Some of the writing is is a little cheesy or just or just poorly poorly thought out. Uh, There's a line in the movie where it's explaining the plot. I get it. It's exposition, but. Uh, Charlie Hunnam is going down, or sorry, Elijah Wood is going down the list of teams. He's just learned what West Ham's firm is all about and, and if they're a good firm. Charlie Hunnam's explaining why they're a good firm. Then Charlie Hunnam explains, I think, Tottenham and talks about how, uh, or not Tottenham, talks about Arsenal, about how they're a good team and a shit firm. Then he talks about Tottenham. Then as Elijah Wood is reading this paperwork, or this uh, newspaper, he goes, well, what about Millwall? There's no fucking way this random dude who knows nothing about soccer is asking about Millwall next. He's asking about Manchester United or Chelsea or someone relevant. And I get that it has to push the plot because Millwall is their rival and you have to establish Millwall as the big threat in the movie. But that is so fucking dumb and it drove me nuts. I completely agree with you. Like just have Charlie Hunnam deliver that. Like he, he's the one who knows Elijah Wood has no idea what the fuck a mill wall is. Well, you got to get the, the money actor to, to really push the plot forward. Come on now. You can't just have him just sitting there. Elijah's a quick learner. He's figured out all the teams in the, he's already smoking day. cigarettes, man. Already. Another thing is the Harvard setup. The Harvard oh, plot t- line is, little bit silly so uh, terrible and, and so bad there's no one no one on earth would just be like oh well you're a rich son of a politician i'll take the fall for you oh it's fucking bullshit oh yeah he'll repay me i mean i guess like we get the payoff at the end which even then i think is really fucking silly but with his tiny wood with his tiny little fist threatening anybody yeah like he trips you and then he's got his fist up near him like okay sure i'll open my mouth and i'll just catch that Actually, that is something Swallowing I like. So, uh, the actor who played that douchebag, he great douchebag, phenomenal douchebag. Oh, phenomenal douchebag, absolutely. What else so, do you hate? Actually, one thing I don't like, I'm, I feel like I'm being very progressive, by the way, so kudos to me. Claire Forlani's a great actress, and she gets fucked over this whole movie. She's such a moron throughout the entire movie. And the, the scene that really did it for me was the end scene where she drives up to this gang fight and is like, Hey, wait, what can I do? And then all of a sudden is about to get murdered by some violent gang member. So I, I, I just think she gets screwed over by the plot and the dialogue. Cause she's basically the wet blanket the entire time. Like the American wet blanket who won't let her husband be in the firm anymore. And then screws up the fight and ultimately gets Charlie Hunt killed. I, I completely agree with you. And 
you know, Zach, everything that you said, like I was also a huge fan of this movie when it came out and it was mostly because I was just so excited that this story about, you know, soccer clubs was finally going to be told. And I think that excitement initially just like made me overreact to it. And now every time I've watched it since I've just liked it less and less where it's just like, Oh, this bothers me. Uh, that's not very good. Uh, that's that's stupid. I really enjoyed it on this watch, actually. I mean, I, it, here's the thing. It's like I, de- I identified. I know that all of these other things are stupid. Like, you're right. The Zach is right. The, the, the writing is super cheesy. Everything to try and service in moving the plot forward or to set up whatever these scenes are, whatever. However, what I did notice this time around more so, like, one is the really – I really love Charlie Hunnam in the movie – but also, too, the fight scenes are kind of fucking dope. The fight scenes are really good, really well choreographed, yeah. really well shot and covered. Like, Except for one. The first one where Elijah Wood's character gets followed and then Bob just like shows up with his army people and they sh- do the shaky cam thing and there's just people... What the fuck happened? They just ran and like other people ran? Like, And also, too, like I get how maybe that... I forget what team it was that they followed Elijah Wood to corner him and to set him up. How the fuck did everyone else know to show up? And how did Bob know to have this organized group of people? Like, it just seemed too well choreographed for it to have all just happened spontaneously. You're you're absolutely right. Yeah, the good guys show up out of nowhere. The bad guys show up out of nowhere. Like a fucking Marvel movie. Like, really? What is this shit? Hey, don't you don't you dare solely the Marvel the MCU, all right? I wasn't. I'm trying to say they're trying to do that and they're not on that level. <laughs> As you said um, though, Charlie Hunnam at least needs his Marvel moment. That's what we'll call them, uh, Marvel moments. All right, Corey, what's next on your list? My next movie that I want to talk about is the big one for you both in terms of you really disliking me. And that is a movie called Irreversible, directed by Gaspar Noé. And it features Vincent Cassell and Monica Bellucci. And I will say up front, I do not enjoy this movie. (sighs) Watching it is an absolute chore. And it leaves you feeling empty and just in a pit of despair. And I, I already said how I'm I'm dead inside, so like watching movies like this make me feel something. At the same time, this is something I don't want to feel. The reason that it's on this list is because film is interesting in that it straddles a line between entertainment and art, and it's supposed to be both. And I get that. But as a piece of art, irreversible is like as close to perfect as I feel like you can get. And in terms of what it's achieving from a filmmaking perspective, like I, it, it absolutely blew my mind the first time I watched it. And it blew my mind again the second time I watched it. And now I probably won't ever watch it again because I don't want to feel those things. But as a piece of art, it is just a remarkable, a remarkable thing. It It's incredible in that sense. So, you know, I want to say that up front. But also, I understand why you both dislike me right now for making you watch that movie. <laughs> it's not that I dislike you. I, all right, so I agree with you that besides for one scene, the way that it's done, I think it's done perfectly in the way that it tells the story. Corey, one thing, I think you should actually 
so that the listeners know what the hell we're talking about, give a quick synopsis of like what this movie is about and how, how it's filmed, because that's important. It's called Irreversible for a reason. Yeah, it's definitely called Irreversible for a reason. And that's that's the thing about this movie is every single choice that is made is with a very exact purpose. And it's done to perfection in that way. You open, you're dropped into a nightclub and you're not really sure why you're there. All you know is actually, that... Yeah, you're you're dropped into a weird apartment, which is actually a reference to his previous film, I Stand Alone. That's neither here mm. nor there. It's just a vehicle to kind of then they go, you know, what's gotcha. this commotion outside? And then you're dropped into this nightclub. All you know is that they're looking for Leitenya. You don't know who that is or what they're doing. And then someone's face gets smashed in with a fire hydrant. And you're just left with how the fuck did we get here? And then the movie proceeds to go in reverse chronological order, similar to something like Memento, where you're going from the end to the beginning to try and understand how did we get to this point. And so everything that's been... Sorry, it just made, it made me think of Tarantino in the way it disorients you with the timeline or the uh, chronological order. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, everything that's being done, you know, you're dropped into this very intense situation. So... You know, what Noe did is he put the camera on a crane and he started swinging it around so that you are feeling the state of mind of these characters in that they are not thinking rationally at all. There is no rationale. There's no purpose to what they're doing. Just like the camera, there is no purpose. And then as you go backwards through the story, the camera begins to chill out as the, as the, you know, characters emotions ramp down from this kind of initial thing that you're dropped into it explains why everything was so intense in the beginning of the movie and i think that's a really interesting way to have told the story obviously there's this brutal rape scene that occurs and that it's that what this whole movie it happens in the center of the movie and the whole movie is literally just centered around it what i don't get and what i don't see is even art i do not understand why that scene had to be so long and so detailed because like i think you could have literally just seen that it was about to happen maybe just go for the beginning but like i get it that he wants maybe he wants you to feel uncomfortable and feel the entire thing maybe that's what it is maybe it's just making someone who otherwise doesn't get it and makes them feel uncomfortable but i the problem is is that i don't have that much faith that someone is is trying to do that in their films and they're just doing it almost like saying it's for art's sake i, I just thought it was that was completely unnecessary a completely unnecessarily long scene so yeah so beam i i mean obviously you and i are on the same page here i hate this movie but i understand i understand the artistic endeavor here and and I at least can understand why people think or why people would find it to be an important, not important, but just a, a, a film that has value. To me, this movie is so over the top. It's graphic portrayal of humanity that it just, it, like it, it lost me. It lost me. Like I didn't, I did not want to look at the screen anymore because it's just so brutal. Let me talk about the things that I let me talk about the things that I like first because I, I do hate this movie, but there are things that I appreciate. The way that the way that the camera is used from the moment the movie starts, the way that the cam the movie is filmed and the camera is yeah. used unsettles you from the word go. 
Uh, it's so, it's well, disorienting, it, yeah. Yeah, to the point where my, I, I was telling Corey last night, my eyes felt like they were going to go crossed. And my stomach was churning because I, because of the way that the camera was used, not because of what the camera was actually showing. It's just how the camera was used. So that is, uh, that's a positive mark. I understand a movie wanting to show how evil humanity or people can be to each other because I think there's an important lesson there somewhere. I think there is value in showing that because we should all better understand how terrible we are to each other at times. The thing is, I think from an artistic standpoint, you could accomplish that without showing, without literally showing as much as this movie showed. I mean, the the rape scene, the rape scene was beyond, that was beyond anything. Uh, and, and I did find it completely I found unnecessary. It, I found it gratuitous. I found it almost like a, fetis- yeah. a fetishization of it, almost in a way. It felt like... I, I agree. And I, so if we're going to talk about the things I, I didn't love, I didn't like, I actually did find the camera, even though the camera work does do a great job of establishing a, a sense of uncomfortability, I actually thought at many times, it just did it for too long to the point where it took away from my my paying attention to what was going on. So the the scene, for instance, in early on in the in the gay club in Rectum, uh, which people who haven't watched this are now going to be like, "What are you guys talking about?" In that club, it it goes on for too long, where I can't like you couldn't see what the fuck was actually happening. I literally couldn't see any of the characters. It's like constantly pointing at the ceiling, pointing at the wall, point, quickly catching the side of someone's face, pointing back to uh, to the floor or something like that. And I get it, you want to be disorienting, but it was too disorienting. Well, I kind of think that that was the point of it. And I'm sorry, I know Corey's, this is Corey's movie, obviously. But I, because I, I, here's the thing is that I do want to stand up for it a bit. As much as I hate that scene, I feel like everything else around it is done perfectly because what I think is great about that is that it is showing you that like everything is clear up to that point. And then once that occurs, everything just completely is just like, it's just like, I don't know. It's not, not like a glitch in the matrix, but it's just literally just everything becomes disoriented. You're not thinking clearly. Nothing is being done clearly. No one is thinking rationally. Nothing is being done rationally at this stage. And I kind of think that that, that's why that camera angle, I think, was just so wonderfully done. Because you do wonder that. I agree with you. And I'm like, dude, this is fucking annoying. Why can't I get this? But then when you look at it, once you watch the whole film and see like exactly why, everything gets so... Like, when you think back on it, like everything is just so fucked up. Like Everything. Meaning even the camera angle at that stage after the rape occurs. Again, the rape scene itself, un- like very gratuitously long. However... If you were to make this a movie about the rape and then also the big reveal at the end, which was the fact that she was pregnant and you didn't know that in the beginning of the movie to understand the gravity of why they were acting the way they're acting, I think was just so fucking wonderfully done. The fact that there still was a big reveal at the at the Uh, at what should have been, say, the beginning of the movie. Sorry, Corey, 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 do you really, want to say anything I, about this movie? Zach and I have been going on and on about it. Well, that's the thing. Is I, I want you guys I want you guys to get it all out there so that then I can tell you why you're wrong and why this is fucking perfect. Oh, no, 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 no. Because right, so exactly what you're describing. I found the reveal that she was pregnant to be actually I, – I just found it to be um, excess, excessive because at that point I already bought in like, yeah, yeah, the guy's girlfriend is – brutally raped and beaten into a coma. I get why he's going to beat the shit out of the other dude. I didn't 
I didn't need her to also be pregnant. It seemed like, it just seemed like, oh, let's add this on too to make it even worse and even worse for you to watch and even more gratuitous and violent. While I completely agree with you guys that the rape scene is extremely gratuitous, I also think that, you know, there's a purpose to it. This is a real thing that happens and it's a very disgusting thing and it's made to make you feel disgusted and that's exactly what it does. And yeah, sure, it lingers on it for too long, but like he is challenging you to feel the things that are that are going on with these characters. And, and I like, feel like that's such a cop out. How I'm is gonna challenge I'm gonna challenge you. It's always in the service, oh, it's challenging. It's meant to challenge you. I think we understand the 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 viciousness of rape and just how 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 violating it is, how violent it is, how every all, all those parts. You, you know, we know these things. It just You know this, and I know this, and Zach knows this, but to say that the vast majority so say, of people like yeah but you don't think it until you're talking about like you some just some schmuck run-of-the-mill schmuck is going to watch this movie no, so do you think thing. this is going to prevent rape like you think this is going to make someone watch this someone what fucking person is going to watch this movie like you know what i was going to rape today no and i listen i don't think it does that but like at the same time like if you're uncomfortable with it, you should be uncomfortable with it no i get that but, but i think like it's just unnecessary to show it I think I, I think it's just I, I think it's more that he almost wanted to just film it, and I think we also have to understand that some of these people that we high in such that we hold in such high regard as like directors, we're starting to realize that some of them are sick fucks, and that there's a lot of a deeper, darker side to them. But like, I don't know this about Gasper, no. But I'm just saying, like, in terms of that scene, there's nothing that you can say to argue to me that it was necessary to show to to such a degree. In, in a film I it just I get the whole realistic part but like to what end Bean brings up a, a point that actually I do think is important or or I just I I particularly agree with is that art art like this in general is it, it yes it's thought provoking and yes there is an important point to be made behind it however the people who make this style of art, also, they're also not thinking about who their audience is in the first place because a movie like this was always only going to see, be seen by a select group of a select type of person or select group of people. So you're not actually helping anything. You're not actually providing something that's thought provoking for a large number of people. So what you're ultimately accomplishing is producing a disgusting movie for a tiny group of people to watch and then think and then think on how horrible humanity is, but it doesn't change anything. So what you've really done is just film something gross for the sake of filming something gross. If it's the part where he's just holding up the knife to her and then it like cuts to before like anything starts, you know, happening further. I think you've, you've now you've done, I think what horror movies can do in terms of not showing the violence and more implied because it lets your imagination run at that stage because you know what the end product is too so i think like any person that's watching this they're watching it for the art of it and i think that that at least will sort of tell it because i feel like everything else that's done in service to it just the whole the way it's everything's built around it i mean i know zach you think that the baby part is extra i thought it was a wonderful i think it was just more amazing that there was this a reveal for a movie that is going chronologically backwards I just feel that showing the 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 actual rape in such detail in the way that they did 
like I, I just I don't I, I I get the whole maybe challenging supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. It's going to make me feel uncomfortable if you know it's implied and I have to think about it. I don't need it spelled out to me. But anyway, <laughs> I can I can also let let everybody know that my wife w- tried watching this with me and lasted forty five minutes before she looked at me and was like, "What the." is wrong with you yeah my wife was just coming home from work and that scene was just about to start and i mean like the scene where like the part where he's literally got her on her stomach and he's on top of her and i just paused it and i'm like i'm going to shelve that till later (laughs) like i am i am going to watch that obviously on my own you don't ever need to see this so nothing to see here i'm watching below deck honey yeah Corey, last thing I'll say, and then you, you definitely need to it out, but uh, this was the movie that I thought you were going to pick for all five. Like, this type of movie I thought you were going to pick for all five, so I'm glad it was- <laughs> that the theme just fit this. I mean, that that would not be a particularly interesting list if I just did that the whole time. And we, honestly... We would just be sad. <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, like, I have no interest in exploring five movies of that ilk. Uh. <laughs> Well, guys, so basically what we're going to do here is we're going to we're going to end the episode right here. We're going to pick it up again when we're going to go through the three through one of your guys's lists. And then, uh, yeah, we'll just uh, we'll have to see you for that. So, um, Zach, thank you for joining us on this uh, on the first part of this. Um, yeah, and, definitely. Uh, and uh, yeah, I guess we'll have to wrap it up on the other end. All right. See you later, guys. Cheers.